On today's episode of the John Campy Show podcast, Barbie is passing Mario Brothers today for the number one domestic box office film of the year. We'll discuss that. Also, the studios have publicly released the details of their offer to the writers, the WGA, and the numbers actually look pretty good. Also, Avatar The Last Airbender is entering its final stage of post-production. We'll discuss the details in that. And Ahsoka had its two-episode premiere. We're going to go over the good and the bad of that. That and a whole bunch more. The John Cavish Show podcast starts right now. and salutations, everybody. Welcome to the Best Damn Move Related Show on the planet at the John Campbell Show podcast. Coming to you from right here in our quaint little studio, brought to you in part by our friends at Mint Mobile. I am, of course, your host, John Campia, and it is an awesome honor and privilege, as it is every day to have you, our international friends, gather around as we talk about our favorite things in the world, movies and movie news, TV and streaming, and all sorts of good things, not just giving you our opinions, but also giving you information and context so you guys can form your own well-informed opinions, whether they're the same or even completely different from ours. I'm joined in studio today with Ray Ora. Woo, Wednesday, baby. Jonathan Voiko's here. Getting over the hump. Writer, director, <laughs> producer, Robert Meyer Burnett is here. Surprise day. And you guys are here, most importantly of all. Thank you so much for being here, making the show part of your day. And here's the way today's show's going to go. We're going to start off by talking about those topics that we listed off. And then we're going to take live questions from our audience and a few questions from our YouTube channel subscribers. If you guys are watching live and want to fire in a topic or question, go ahead and use the Super Chat feature. And if it's appropriate to be used on our show, uh, we'll address it. Uh, a little bit later on. All right. With that down, guys, let's dive into it. And we're going to start with this. Uh, I mean, the big movie story of the year has really been Barbenheimer. Uh, Oppenheimer recently crossed the $700 million mark. It recently joined the top 10 highest grossing R-rated films ever. And it's getting up to the, like the number six, five, four. It's closing in on the Deadpool movies. Might even cross those. I didn't think it would get to Deadpool levels, but it may very well get to the Deadpool levels. It's been great, but Barbie. It's Barbie's world, and we're just living in it. <laughs> As it uh, shattered all sorts of records, and today, Barbie passes Mario Brothers as the number one domestic box office take of the year. This is from our friends over at Joe Blow, the headline there. Barbie to overtake Super Mario Brothers movies, the highest grossing movie of the year at the domestic box office. They quote this, sorry, Mario, it's Barbie's world now. Per deadline, Barbie will overtake the Super Mario Brothers movie to become the year's highest grossing movie at the domestic box office. This Wednesday, that is today, we'll pass that mark and we'll take in a haul $574.2 million. It's probably even going to be a little bit higher than that. But today, that's it. The domestic mark is down. Now that's all in front of it is the more important number, which is the overall worldwide. Mario Brothers is still sitting at about $70 million ahead of Barbie. Uh, it will probably beat that this weekend. I mean, it's going to be closer than we thought it was going to be maybe a week or so ago, but it's probably going to pass it at that point. Rob, I think it's safe to say if we go back to the beginning of the year and we, if we had a discussion about what are going to be the top two box office films of the year, I don't think a year ago Mario Brothers or Barbie would have been in that conversation. I think we would have been, and we did talk, we would have been talking about things like Fast X, Guardians of the Galaxy. You did, though, about Mario. <laughs> well, but not a year ago. It, it wasn't until about 
three or four months before Mario came That's out true. that I called it because I started to see everything. But a year ago, it wouldn't have been on my list. That's true. I, I, okay. I, so I don't want to take too much credit there because a year ago, I would not have thought that. So number one, what do you think about that? Like Mario, uh, Barbie coming out of nowhere. And how significant, how big of a deal is it that Barbie is now, at least the domestic box office, has now crossed Mario Brothers? Well, I think it's, it's interesting that both of these are based on beloved toy video game franchises that have spanned multiple generations. And it shows how ingrained, I think, that these... Look, if, if these movies weren't, first of all, good, right. they wouldn't have succeeded. And I think it shows that I was surprised... Um, Mario was what I expected, but Barbie surprised me in terms of uh, just how sophisticated it actually was and and that there was a lot more going on in the Barbie movie than I thought. Um, and I think that's why audiences have loved that film. I mean, Mario, Mario Brothers gave people what they hoped it would give them. I mean, the fact that it made $100 million in Japan, it shows that Japanese audiences, hometown audience, home field advantage, but it, it did them proper it, it showed that respect to the character so it, it it deserved to do well right barbie to me i was like i don't know man but again not just barbenheimer that got people into the theater but it was the way that the movie resonated with audiences and it, it was actually about something and after you left the theater you could have arguments or discussions there was something to t i would not have thought john that i could sit over a, an entire meal which i did over dinner and have a conversation that lasted 2 hours about the meaning of barbie <laughs> i would not have thought that that would have been something that would have happened in my life but here we are and i think that that you know people have gone back you've got again the female audience not just i mean men went too but the female audience mothers and daughters Kind of like when Captain Marvel made over a billion dollars. Right. It's an audience that I think is underserved, especially when it comes to IP. And and it just worked. And the fact that they had, you know, you have Greta Gerwig, who I would call her an auteur. She wrote a script with her partner, Noah Baumbach. They wrote something that was probably better than that movie even deserved. Well, she, she's a three-time Academy Award-nominated filmmaker. Absolutely. So you've got uh, uh, one of our best filmmakers who teamed up with another one of our great filmmakers together coming up with this property. You had a star in Margot Robbie, you know, who's obviously been battered a little bit at the box office, although no one would say that she isn't a great actress, who put herself on the line for this, rescuing it, a, a project that was sort of stuck in development hell. I mean, remember when Amy Schumer was going to be Barbie? Well, and then after Amy Schumer's Barbie, Anne Hathaway was attached yeah. to be Barbie and went through like a whole ton of development hell iterations, finally landing with Margot Robbie. And I think in a way, Barbie is kind of, it represents the best of Hollywood because you had an actor sign on who, I don't know if they if she convinced uh, people to come on board, but they all willed this into happening and the studio allowed them to go with their vision. You know, it could have had a lot of studio interference. I'm sure that <laughs> it was just, to me, it's an example of how this business can work and still surprise people, still make great entertainment. And I'm sure the cynics are going to be talking for years to come about how, well, it was a perfect storm in Barbenheimer and it wouldn't work. But no, Barbie, at the end of the day, was an interesting film that was probably more interesting than it should have been because it had people who believed in it and they made the movie that they were allowed to make. And look where they got. Here's an interesting stat for you to really understand like the, the, the seismic shift that's kind of happened in the landscape here. Again, let's go back to if we were going back a year. 
in its fifth weekend, which was this just this past weekend, in its fifth weekend at the box office, fifth, Barbie almost made as much in its fifth weekend as a brand new opening weekend DC major superhero film with Blue Beetle making $25 million at the box office and Barbie in its fifth weekend made $21 million at the box. I mean, that is staying power. I mean, Ray, we went to go see Blue Beetle and there were still people in its fifth weekend there in pink, you know, guys, 45% of the audience, by the way, according to Variety, 45% of the audience has gone to see Barbie were male. I mean, that's still a, a big, heavy majority of 65% or, uh, uh, yeah, 65% for, uh, th- no, 35, 35, 55%. Let me try that again. 55% of the audience was female, but a lot of men were going and enjoying this film. And now it's crossing Mario Brothers. And now I guess the clock is just on as to when will it catch Mario for the overall world lead. And then the question is, I, we were asked this question the other day, Rob, about is there any film left this year that has the possibility of catching it? I say the only film that has a chance is going to be Dune 2. Because, you know, the last one won six Academy Awards. The audience loved it. It made $400 million in the box office, despite the fact that it was released on HBO the exact same day. And it still made $400 million at the box office. I don't know that Dune 2 is going to catch Barbie. Yeah, no. But if there's any one that has the chance, I think that's going to be the one. I just the thing about Dune is it doesn't have the same kind of family crossover appeal. No, it's going to be a totally different demographic. Yeah, to totally get. different demographic. But I, you know, I think Barbie is a once in a lifetime film. But you know what? It shows that these movies—it's not enough to be an IP-derived film anymore. It still has to be an IP-derived auteurist film. You still need great directors and great writers on these properties. And I think that's something that's been forgotten. And maybe people look to Barbie. If you want to take a lesson away from that, you know, if you're going to make, I'm waiting for the Gnipkinop movie. And if somebody tries to make the Gnipkinop movie, you better get a writer, director, and a star who are really behind Gnipkinop to make sure that it turns out to be the movie it should be. Now, I don't think any of us are going to say that Mario was an Artur movie per se, but I think if you want to make movies like Barbie. But I think yeah. the, the animation studio, though, certainly had. Oh, the Illumination did a terrific job yeah. on the look and the feel of that movie. All right. With that down, guys, let's move on. To the writer's strike. The writer's strike, which is now getting on three months. Or sorry, it's a well over three months. We're getting on to cl- close to four months now for the writer's strike that's been going on. Now, we know the horrible way this whole thing began. They couldn't make a deal. And then the two sides didn't even talk to each other for the first 100 days, which is, we talked about this yesterday, completely asinine. Completely asinine on everybody's part. Because, and the part that really pisses me off about it, I said this yesterday, but I'll say it again is you have people who are not members of the AMPTP and people who are not members of the WJA who have nothing to do with their labor dispute, but they can't work because sets are shut down. Members of IATSE, designers, crew people, all out of work. And they these two sides couldn't even bother to talk to each other for the first 100 days. That being said, recently, it became uh, public knowledge that the studios finally submitted a counterproposal to the WGA, And the two sides have been meeting. Thankfully, they've been getting together and talking. Well, yesterday, according to this report in The Hollywood Reporter, the studios actually made public the details of their counterproposal, their offer, if you will, uh, to the writers and laid out for us what those details are. Now, 
if you're somebody who starts to doze off during numbers and stuff like that, uh, <laughs> try to muscle through this if you can. For the rest of you, I think we're going to find this pretty interesting. But here's basically what the studios, this is what they're telling us they have put in their offer to the writers, okay? This is the official document that comes from the AMPTP representing the studios. They said this. First of all, they are offering significantly higher compensation. Uh, this is the highest wage increase for the WGA in 35 years. Eh, that might be more of a negative commentary about how little you have increased their wages over the past 35 <laughs> years and how big the increase is now. But, okay, let's be fair. Uh, a compounded 13% increase over th a three-year contract with an increase of 5% in year one, 4% in year two, and 3.5% in year three. On top of wages increase, a 15% increase in minimum week. Remember, the numbers we're about to talk about are minimums. All right? Minimums. Yeah, Rob. On top oh. of wage increases, <laughs> a 15% increase in minimum weekly rates for Article 14 writers, so writers other than story editors or executive story editors, in the first year of this agreement, with further general rate wage increases in the second and third years of the agreement, this would take a writer from $9,888 a week to $11,371 a week for a guarantee of up to nine weeks. So if you're working on a project that you're going to get nine weeks, okay, I'm just going to open up my calculator here because I can't do this off the top of my head. 11371 multiply that by nine weeks. Guess what? You just made $102,000 for about two months' work. That, so they're taking the minimums up from $9,800 to minimum $11,371. Now, let's say you're working on a slightly longer series, okay? So you are now going to get a minimum weekly guaranteed that increases from $8,240 to $9,000, let's just say $9,500 a week. Okay, so that's on a 15-week thing. So let's say you're working at $9,500 a week and you work on a 15-week show. You just made $142,000 for working under four months, less than one-third of the year. How many of you would love to have a job where you get to work one-third of the year and then take a whole bunch of months off? Me. Think, yeah, many, many of us. You get work four months and then take eight months off and then come be like being a professional football player without having to, you know, brutally put your body through a whole hell of a lot of stuff that the professional now, football players have to. Well, one thing though, I, are these, this isn't just like your staff writers, right? Cause this is article 14 writers. So are those writers who are also like the showrunners or producers or whatever? Ah, it gets to that. Okay. There's more details to come. Oh. So, and then of course, if you're going to be working really long-term, like say nearly half the year, uh, you're, the minimums go from 7,412 to $8,524 a week. All right. So then they address high-budget SVOD residual issues. Now, this is streaming video on demand, all right? So this is like when I go online and don't watch something, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong here, Rob, if you know better, not when I go online to watch Mario Brothers stream for free on Peacock, but rather when I go on to uh, iTunes movie library and rent 
for yes. seven or eight dollars, right? Their residuals go up. A total worldwide domestic and foreign residuals increase from seventy-two thousand six and sixty-seven dollars per episode to eighty-seven thousand five hundred fifty-six dollars per episode. So they that put in there. Now, one of the big concerns that the writers had, and I hundred percent agree with the writers on this. One of their big concerns is with shrinking to non-existent writers' rooms. There's no room for new writers, for tomorrow's writers to cut their teeth and get experience. Normally in a writer's room, you got your showrunner, and then they'll bring on some really seasoned, experienced, proven writers in their writer's room, and then bring in a couple of mid-level writers, and then one or two new writers to make sure that they're cutting their teeth, bring fresh ideas, and set up the future writers, right? And the and with the shrunken writer's room that the studios wanted, the writers have been very, very concerned that new writers are going to have no way to get into the business because if you can only hire three writers in a writer's room, you're always going to go get the most experienced, most proven talent. No one's going to get be able to develop it. Well, they said this. The studio said, a new structure to train writers to become the showrunners of tomorrow by guaranteeing the length of employment and requiring that at least two mid-level writers chosen by the showrunner be assigned to production. The APTP is committed to allowing the showrunner to select at least two mid-level writers to be assigned to productions uh, who are each guaranteed at least 20 weeks of employment unless the production period is shorter, so on and so forth. All right. Then new compensation structure for a development room. Because this is another big issue that the writers had, and I 100% agreed with the writers on this. But now this user is saying, writers will be guaranteed a minimum of 10 weeks of employment and for Article 14 writers, other than story editors and executive story uh, editors, the week-to-week rate of pay will increase by 43.8% over the current rate, raising the rate from 9888 per week to 14214 a week. Then they get on to landmark uh, protections for writers surrounding the use of generative artificial intelligence. This was another big issue that the writers had, and 100% I agreed with them on this. Uh, a writer will not be disadvantaged if any part of the script is based on generative AI produced material so that the writer's compensation, credit, and separated rights will not be affected by the use of generative AI produced material. What they're basically saying is this. The studio is saying, we still want to be able to be able to take advantage of AI here and there if we want to, but if we do, it will have zero impact on the credit that a writer gets, zero impact on the compensation that a writer gets, zero impact on the work that the writer does. So they're basically saying, look, we still want to be able to use AI if there's a particular circumstance where it'll help us out. But the studios are now making assurances we will in no way let that affect the writer. That's what they're claiming at any rate. Then another big thing that you know, we've heard Chris Carr talk a lot about this, that there's no transparency from the streamers about what kind of numbers they get. Well, the studios have made this commitment. Increased data transparency to reflect that the internet has changed the dynamics of the entertainment business. For the first time, viewership data in the form of quarterly confidential reports is to be provided to the WGA that will include total SVOD view hours per title. This increased transparency will enable the WGA to develop proposals to restructure uh, the current SVOD residuals regime in the future. So they're at least not going all the way, but they're at least giving some commitments to having some transparency. Quarterly reports, four times a year, to go to the WGA. So they're not going to make the numbers public. They're not going to let everybody know them, but they're making, at least it's a little bit of a step. Rob, I don't know that this is going to be enough for the WGA, 
but it does represent a significant shift from the AMPTP from where they were. They've absolutely made some pretty significant concessions here. What do you think about this? And does them at least taking this step give you hope that they can get closer together? Well, I think the thing that it shows me right away is that at least they're serious about negotiating. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it shows, I think, a part on the AMPTP, a willingness to realize that this is important, that these are numbers that are real numbers. They're not a, they're, it's not a pittance. Some of the things, the SVOD, the idea of streaming stuff, I still think that there needs to be more refinement there. I also, before before I give definitive answers to something like this, I'd have to have the rebuttal from the WGA and read that. But the things like generative AI, what's really interesting is we've seen that uh, recently, I think a judge said that anything that's AI generated is not copyrightable. Oh, yes. That was a major. We talked about that yesterday. A major major thing. thing. So if you're using generative AI to write a script, will you be able to use that script and copyright that script? You can use it, but you can't copyright it. And you and I could go, oh, that's a nice script you developed. We're going to take it and use it too. Yes. You have no protections. And there's no protections at all. And I would say this. I don't pay, if, if I'm a producer... I don't pay a writer to use generative AI. I don't care what kind of a tool it is. I would expect a writer to be right. Because as soon as a writer uses something like generative AI, that tool writes. It does your job for you. And if you really want to be considered a writer, I would say the writers also have to have an obligation to not use generative AI in their work. And and I think it's great. Both sides should agree. Using generative AI muddies the copyright issue. That alone is enough for me to say as a producer, no, no, I will, I will, I will not, we we will not use generative AI. And I think that's going to be true. I mean, costume designers, you can have AI design a costume for you now. And a costume designer doesn't want that. A costume designer, that's their job is to design a costume. Generative AI can spit out 10 different costumes with a prompt. And I think, and then, but a costume in a movie, if somebody's, it's, it also is copyrightable. All that stuff is copyrightable. So I think it's really interesting if, if they just, if movie, if movie studios come down and say, well, we need to own our material and we need to make sure hundred percent of the time it's owned. Maybe now, generative- the WGA, by the way, has issued a statement since then. And oh. I, I gotta say that while I have been completely on board with all, everything except a residual. I'm still very iffy on the issue of residuals. Yes. That being said, the other 12 things they've asked for, I'm 100% on the writer's side. But the writers, the writer's guild, I should say, have taken this really annoying approach of saying, we're going to litigate this in the court of public opinion. And we're going to try to, we're going to just bad mouth and insult and we're going to do all this kind of stuff when guess what? The public opinion means nothing here. The studios don't care what the public opinion is on this. They're going to do what's good for business. And you crying about it isn't going to, I mean, you know what? Here's the real problem. They have some real legitimate issues, some real legitimate gripes. And when they come out and whine and cry about it, instead of just presenting the facts, it kind of undermines their, the legitimacy of their position. You know what I mean? But so anyway, the WG has come out and they said, uh, basically, uh, this isn't the AMPTP being serious about wanting to bargain. This is just them posturing. They're not serious and all that kind of stuff. And again, what is making a statement like that publicly 
do to help things along. Put out a statement that says, we appreciate that the AMPTP has put this out. However, uh, while we appreciate the concession, uh, we are still far apart. They have offered this, but we stand firm that we need this. They have offered this, but we stand firm that we need it. Like, put, just put out the data. Put out the information. Let us know where you are. Quit the soapboxing and whatever and just tell us. Like, okay, you're asking for what exactly? You're offering what exactly? Let us see how far apart you are and where you guys can come to a compromise. I completely agree with you. And so, I don't know. Like, how much longer do you think this thing's going to stretch out? I mean, at least they're talking again, which That's they weren't doing for a while. Yeah, a- I, I, I agree. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't. Uh, yeah, I yeah. but no, I, 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 look, I agree with you. And the thing that I think about is like you and I, are, I think are both, we're on the side of the writers, obviously, all film and television, especially, John, in a year where the Emmy Awards, both in comedy and drama, are so strong. Hmm. You know, it shows what great writing means to our entertainment. And to have that many great TV shows. I mean, what is Succession? It's a show about people in rooms talking. It's all written. And, and we have, in both comedy and drama, we, we see every day, we watch shows every day that show how important good writing is. So we're both on the side of, of that. But like you said, we also have to have good faith negotiations. And we have to, we don't want an industry torn asunder where everybody, the writers hate the producers and the producers hate the writers. You, you have to show being conciliatory and negotiating in good faith. Right. And being financially reasonable. And yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. Because like, here's the other thing too. I I'm getting so tired of reading these comments because I see them all the time. It's like, good. Let the, let the writer starve. And they, they've been writing nothing but crap. Anyway, here's, and I say, Oh, okay. Okay. Time out. You got any favorite shows? Oh yeah. I love this, 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 and this. Guess what? All of them <laughs> written by WGA members. Yeah, exactly. You got a favorite movie? Oh yeah. I love this, this, and this. Guess what? All of them written by WGA members. So we don't underestimate how good the writing can be and don't underestimate how bad writing can be. And we're not going to get better writing until we get the WGA uh, with a new contract and working again. All right, guys, listen, we still have a whole bunch of stuff that we need to go down and talk about, including Avatar. The last airbender takes another significant step towards being completed. And we're getting that live action adaptation. The Ahsoka premiere came out. What was good about it? What was bad about it. Uh, We're going to talk about those things, but before we do, we're going to take a second and thank a couple of sponsors of today's episode of the John Campius Show podcast, our friends at Rocket Money and Mint Mobile. Guys, we want to take a second and thank a sponsor of today's video, Rocket Money. Did you know that the average person has around 12 paid subscriptions and they might not even remember to subscribing to half of those? If you have no idea just how much you're spending each month, you need Rocket Money. It's this great app that tracks all of your expenses so you know exactly where your money is going. I recently just found out that over 80% of people have subscriptions that they've completely forgotten about. Seriously, think about how many free trials you subscribe to that you just probably never canceled. And that's why I'm such a big fan of Rocket Money, because I was one of those people. When I signed up to Rocket Money, I was stunned to find out that a gym I had belonged to in another city I lived in, I had still been paying my dues to for over two years. Also, that music subscription service I use, yeah, I forgot I was subscribed to two other ones. That's where Rocket Money comes in, because Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. With over 3 million users and counting, Rocket Money customers have saved on average of $720 a year. So stop wasting money on things you you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions and manage your money the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com slash campia. That's rocketmoney.com slash campia. Rocketmoney.com slash campia. 
Guys, we want to take a second to thank a sponsor of today's video, Mint Mobile. Signing your life away to a big wireless provider is kind of like being trapped on a roller coaster from hell. Sure, it looks like fun at first. They probably even threw in a free phone, but now you can't get off. Month after month of insane bills and unexpected thrills, like overages and surprise fees. If that sounds like your current big wireless plan, it's time to get off the ride with Mint Mobile. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are just $15 a month. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for just 15 bucks a month. You guys know before, I came to Mint Mobile, I was paying triple what I am paying now on the standard big wireless plan, and I will never go back. All plans come with unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get your new unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped right to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com campia. That's mintmobile.com dot com slash campia cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash campia and thank you to our friends at rocket money and mint mobile for sponsoring this episode of the john campy show podcast all right guys with that down let's talk about this shall we i'm not a big anime guy everybody knows that and so i was really late to the party of Avatar The Last Airbender. As a matter of fact, it wasn't really until the pandemic when we were all just looking for stuff to watch (laughs) that I finally went, you know what? I'm going to watch Avatar The Last Airbender. And darn it, I quite enjoyed it. It's good. Um, I mean, the first season is, is a little more childish, but then they get actually quite deep and they deepen the characters and all kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, I, I really quite enjoyed Avatar The Last Airbender. So now, then of course, M. Night uh, did one of, I don't think anybody's going to disagree, one of the worst cinematic films ever made in history with his version of Avatar. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, inexplicably bad. Inexplicably <laughs> like, wait, bad. What? It was so awful. I mean, you know what? I get in trouble for this, but it's true. I did find some redeeming qualities about there were certain elements that I thought did well, but overall terrible movie. But now we got Netflix, uh, Netflix, who other than HBO, probably the best at making series. Uh, they they make great series, much better than they make original movies. But they make great series almost as well as HBO does. And by the way, Apple TV Plus is coming for that crown because they've been doing a great job too. But Guy coming, the casting has been wonderful, um, all that kind of stuff. Well, according to a new report and according to their official Twitter account, Avatar The Last Airbender has now entered one of the final stages of production in that they are now, they got the synchron stage orchestra and choir bringing Avatar The Last Airbender score to life where they're now actually scoring it out. You know, I see a picture like that and I just think of the old Star Wars, John Williams conducting everything, but they are now in actually scoring. Now, this is significant. And Rob, I want you to jump in and, and correct me here where I go off path. But this is generally one of the final things that you do because you have for the music to hit all their beats and the notes that they want, you got to basically have your edit done. Yeah, so That's going to be done. If they're going to score, if you want to change the edit around, suddenly the score goes out the window. This is one of the final pieces they have to do, which is really this, I don't, can you even, is it even called a tweet anymore? The, th- it's called the thing's it. called X. Is, do you call it an X? A- an X. I, I still call it a tweet. They X'd it? Yeah, yeah, so we'll call it an X. This X that they just put out, idiotic. 
thing. Um, this X that they just put out uh, seems to suggest that this movie is just this movie. This series is just about complete and ready to go. It's got a lot of people excited that early 2024 is when this thing's going to hit. Anyway, Rob, you know, does this tell us with with us seeing them now in there scoring this thing, putting the music to it? Does this indeed tell us that this thing is just about all wrapped up? I think so. I mean, it's 10 episodes. I think so. I can't like remember. A, 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 but but yeah, they're probably scoring everything. That's what they would do. I mean, unless you're Peter Jackson, who has no problem changing a movie while he's in the scoring stages. Um, this, <laughs> you know I, just I would idea. say that, yes, this they're in the position of, of these are the final touches that they're putting on the film. I mean, obviously, it still has a sound mix to go. And right. there there's probably effect sequences that they're waiting for. But they already know they've dropped animatics in and things like that. So they know the timing. So if they're scoring with, and this is not a small orchestra, it looks like. No, that looks like a pretty it's, serious. It's quite sizable and it's very exciting. So um, seeing the, even that picture, just knowing that they're, the, it's going to have that kind of a score makes me excited. Yeah. So and I got to tell you, I'm looking forward to this. Me show. too. Uh, I really am. I don't know why I am excited about this, but I'm not excited about something like uh, One Piece, which a lot of people are very excited about. But this thing... I don't know, just everything that seemed, because recently they put out some stills, right? And I don't know why. And remember, we're only talking about still pictures, right? For all we know, this could be the worst show ever made. But it feels right to me. Like yes. the, the characters, the world, the costuming, it just, everything. And I know this is an extremely subjective thing to say, but it just feels right. My anticipation level is actually pretty high. There's going to be eight episodes and they're each going to be in one hour. Yeah. Uh, one hour. Episode, okay. So okay. So eight. Look, I don't mind eight episodes. So I'm, I'd rather a twenty episode season or something. But eight up. Hey, if you're going to make it, as long as the episodes are an hour long, then then I'm okay. Question is for you guys. What do you think? Are you excited about Avatar: The Last Airbender? Maybe you don't care. I don't know. I'm kind of stoked about it, but it is coming. And uh, now they're doing the scoring, and I'm I'm really psyched to see it. All right, guys. With that down. Let's move on to this, shall we? Well, yesterday was the day. Ahsoka, which uh, years ago at that famous Disney investor stream thing that they did, when they announced Kathleen Kennedy said Ahsoka is coming. They also said Rangers of the New Republic was coming and that isn't coming. But, you know, Ahsoka's coming. A lot of people got excited. Uh, just quick background. I've never been a big fan of the Ahsoka character. Started to win me over with Rebels. Then I really got on board with the Rosario Dawson iteration that we saw in Mandalorian. And I and the trailers, I think, have been great. And I've been very excited about this Ahsoka series. So then they make the even better announcement that, guess what? Not midnight releases for us in L.A. For you guys on the East Coast, it was even worse. It was 3 a.m. For us, it was midnight. They said, you know what? Primetime releases. Prime time, Prime time, 9 p.m. East Coast, 6 p.m. for us folks in L.A. It's like, great, we were actually able to have a proper get-together last night. Yep. We had barbecue, got together, had some uh -huh. drinks. We are all get, be able to sit down then and watch Ahsoka. So we watch it. But that's where it really gets important. <laughs> Is it any good? <laughs> eh. <laughs> no, I, I'll say this. Not bad. Not bad. Uh, I got some good things that I really liked about it, some things I really didn't like about it. And overall, I'm still kind of hopeful for the series. I, th I think there's enough there that it could go in some very good directions. Then again, Disney Plus series have had the unfortunate track record of starting really strong and then getting worse as they go. 
Um, hopefully this is going to be a, something that just takes off from this landing spot. So I'm going to run down for you guys some of my good and bad. And then, uh, Rob, I'm going to go over to you and uh, we'll add to our good and bad list, shall we? Okay, let's start with what I think was the good. Well, first thing, the best thing to me was Balin and Shin. The great Ray Stevenson uh, playing Balin. I loved this villain. It, there, there was very much um, a Christopher Lee, Dooku kind of feel mm-hmm. to it. Fair. He was calm. He wasn't this enraged thing. I particular, And by the way, guys, I'm going to give you a little bit of warning because it came out la- yesterday, last night. We will be going into some spoilers here. So I'm just giving you the heads up, all right? But just like, I even love the little attitudes. Like when he says, it would be a shame to kill Ahsoka because there are so few Jedi left. Like he doesn't, really want to do that. Right. He's not really Sith. He's something else. They're going to go into that. And I loved his master apprentice relationship with Shin. I'll tell you what, I didn't give Ray two squirts of urine Woo! about the Shin character. Yeah, squirt, squirt. Squirt, squirt. Couldn't give two squirts. Watching it in the previews, like, ah, this is going to be the, the throwaway little hench buddy. But there's something about the intensity of the character, the loyalty of the character, that even though she didn't have a ton of dialogue, I found myself really into that she character. She looked great, though. She looked great. Her she looked fight, dangerous, scary. Yeah, she kicked Sabine's ass. You know, it just looked really good, and I found myself really loving this character. So for me, the number one thing um, is, and these are in uh, really no particular order, but uh, I absolutely love the, the Shin thing. Next up, I really love seeing the Rebels crew again. I love seeing Chopper. I love seeing Hera. I love seeing even Clancy Brown as his character that he voiced in the show. I love seeing Lothal again, the station where Ezra was when we first met him, seeing the portraits in the background. I I just, I, you gotta understand, I really liked Rebels. I liked Rebels so much. My wife and I did a rewatch of it, actually. We watched the entire series twice. I really liked that show. So just revisiting and seeing these characters again, I absolutely loved it. Also in the positive good side. I'm going to say this. Um, I thought some, not all, but I thought some of the action was actually pretty solid. Um, I, I thought some of it looked a little Book of Boba Vett slow. Some of it looked a little slow, a little bit awkward, but some of it, I mean, look, nothing in this was the Qui-Gon Obi-Wan versus Darth Maul fight in Phantom Menace good. I mean, not, it, not, nothing in this came to that level, but that's fine. That's like top of the heap, but some of it was actually quite exciting. And quite thrilling. And so, you know what? For a Disney Plus show, that's all I can ask for. All right. (laughs) Another thing that I really quite liked, and that was uh, Mary Elizabeth Weinstead's Hera. I I thought her Hera was great. As a matter of fact, and we'll get into some of the negatives, her iteration of Hera was the most true to the cartoon version of, uh, of her character that I found. We'll talk about this in a second. I didn't find Sabine to be a lot like the Sabine I remember from the cartoon. I don't find Ahsoka to be a lot like the Ahsoka I remember from the cartoon. But Mary Elizabeth Winstead's Hera, uh, I thought she was great. She felt like the real Hera from the show. And I just love Mary Elizabeth Winstead, so there's that. Me too. All right. Next pro. Uh, Hu Yang, the droid. I never usually just get into the droid characters stuff, but I love Hu Yang. Uh, As voiced by David David Tennant, I thought... At first, I thought this character is going to annoy me. Like when Ahsoka first goes up to the cockpit, and she's got a droid there. I'm like, uh, this is going to be a 
K2SO kind of wannabe droid, but it's not. It's its own very unique personality, its own very unique character, and uh, I really, I quite liked it. Okay. With that down, let me get into some of the bad. (laughs) And then, Rob, I'm going to want you to add to our good and bad Mm. list. I got to start with this, just because of my background. I'm not saying this is the worst thing about it, but I got to say this. Oh, my God, it was some of the worst green screen and use of the volume that I've seen in a while. It it, it w- wasn't quite as bad as some of it was in, in Obi-Wan, because some of it in Obi-Wan was just unforgivable. Mm-hmm. But we were, like, sitting there, and it's like, oh, my God. Like, like audibly saying out loud. Like, you could even see some of the haze glow around the character that separated them from the green screen. That I'm was like, just oh my God. Aura. What's that? That was just their force aura. <laughs> the force aura. Yeah. That's right. It, it was like 2010 video game cutscene bad. And then when they would go into some of the wider shots with the, uh, in the volume, you could still see some of the right angles of where the floor was meeting the screen. And it just didn't look like this shot here. Actually, maybe one of the better ones. And look, maybe this is the visual effects guy, me. It really bothered me in that shot. Well, I remember when this was live. The shadows on the ground, first of all, weren't consistently going in the same direction. Oh, yeah, they're not. So yeah. where's the sun in the sky in this shot? Where's yeah. the sun in the sky? And why are the shadows going in completely different directions? Are those shadows or is that dirt? That might be dirt. No, it's shadows. And on top of that, why are the shadow lines so hard? Like there's, there's no opacity to it like it's just these very hard anyway that, that, that that's a nitpick I, that is a fully admitted nitpick well, there, yeah, there is but yeah. some of the shots were better than others some some weren't so good once but some of it was just absolutely bad also i'm sorry there's no getting away from this but next up on the list here jonathan some of the dialogue was absolutely dreadful not that not all of it there's actually a couple of, of, of pretty cool spots, but some of the dialogue, and I attribute that maybe a little bit to, you know what? If this show right now was in cartoon form, it might not feel bad, but you got to understand that dialogue will come across differently if it's being presented in a medium of animation or live action. And some of it was just cringy, like really top of the line cringy. All right. This is going to be one that a lot of people are going to get upset about, but I'm sorry. It's, and it's where we're at. They're probably already upset. Ahsoka and Sabine (laughs) both came off as unlikable characters. I'm sorry for most of the show. Ahsoka came across as an asshole. And in rebels, she does not. And in Mandalorian, she does not. And by the way, new drinking game, go back and watch the first two episodes and take a shot. Every time Ahsoka does this. Every, every every fucking scene, arm cross. Every scene, you would be slobbering drunk by... Already am. <laughs> already am. Pretty quick. It was just, I was like, uh, uh, whatever. But I just, I just didn't find them likable. Like, I, I don't know why now. You can make an argument that that is really, that they may have intentionally done that to create a false base point to show development through the remaining eight episodes. Maybe, right? but wouldn't she have already developed as a character? Through yes, a that's why I said a yeah. false base point. But, but you're uh, regressing the character to make them look better. To at make the them end? look like they've done, yeah. But, but you know, if they are, 
if they are doing that, I'll give them some credit for that. Like, I, I don't like it when a series ends where a character is exactly what they were when the show began. Like, they, you saw no transformation, no change. Their experiences did nothing to influence them or move them or whatever. So maybe, maybe, I'm listing it as a negative right now, but let's see how the series goes. Maybe I'll change my mind on that. If they use that as a launching point, to show shift and a judge and adjustment and growth as they go. So I'm, I'm saying that up front, like maybe that's the case there, but for just watching the first two episodes, it came across the characters just came across as unlikable. And yeah, anyway, last, last one I'm going to do here for the bad points is this, that Jonathan, let's bring this up, yeah. um, is the plot devices that made no sense. Now plot devices Different people interpret it different ways and have different definitions for it. But basically, a, a plot device is something that you got to have happen in order to have something else happen, right? And a plot device is not a bad thing. Uh, it's, it's like any other tool. It can be used well. It can be used badly. But throughout these two episodes, the plot devices they chose to use left me really scratching my head. I'll give you one example. Uh, General Sindula and Ahsoka go to the shipyards and they're saying, well, well, what's that? First of all, they got this top secret giant warp core. Where are we going to hide it? Eh, out there in the middle of the floor where the sun is shining. Haven't out you it. heard but, of hidden in plain sight? Yeah, we're going to just put it right out there. Okay, that's not the plot device that I'm worried about. But when they're like, well, uh, show us the, the details of it. Well, we can't, you know, all this kind of stuff, right? Now, the showrunners wanted us to know that everybody in there is working for the Empire. Okay, we need a plot device to explain why the audience now finds that out. And their answer to that was, have a guy jump out of his chair <laughs> and instead of surprisingly shooting Ahsoka, first yell, for the Empire! And giving six seconds for Ahsoka to turn around and go, what? Oh, you're going to shoot at me. Okay, like... Some little nobody for the empire. When they just explained that none of these guys are loyal to the empire, they're just doing it for money. That's what they said in the show. These people are just doing it for money. And yet, instead of getting the drop on Ahsoka and shooting them, have him yell out for the empire because how else is everybody going to know watching that these guys are working Lieutenant for the Greg blew it for the empire again. And that's just, just blew it for the empire, but a couple <laughs> more big plot devices. So you're telling me the secret map to finding out where Grand Admiral Thrawn is? was hidden a thousand years ago in a secret underground... What the fuck are you talking about? Okay, so there's there's that. Also, big plot device failure for me. When Ahsoka first brings the orb to General Syndulla, it's like, I, it needs a key. I don't know how to unlock it. General Syndulla, one of the heads of the Republic military with access to every resource in the universe... Instead of saying, you know, at the University of Coruscant, we have the most brilliant mathematical and decipher minds in the galaxy. Let's take it there and find it out. You know what? I bet Sabrine Wren could help you out with that. What? <laughs> what? Have you like, seen her I get it. Droids? You needed a plot device to set up why Ahsoka goes to Sabine. I get that. But you should have come up with something better than that. Because I was like sitting there going, what? <laughs> really? That's what you're doing? So little plot devices. So again, my quick list here. The good. Balin and Shin were great. Seeing the rebel crew made my heart smile. Some of the action was really solid. Mary Elizabeth Winston's hair I thought was the most true to the cartoon character. And I thought I was going to be annoyed by that droid, but Hugh Yang I thought was really delightful. The bad, 
some really bad green screen and use of the volume, which has become a standard thing with a lot of these shows. And one of the reasons why Andor is so great. Um, absolutely some dreadful dialogue. Ahsoka and Sabine came off as unlikable to me and the plot devices that absolutely made no sense. So those are some of my good and bad. Rob, we unfortunately didn't get to watch this together yesterday. So we haven't had a chance to really go into what we thought about it, but your general impressions of the two episodes and what would you say are your good and bads? Well, I would say, first of all, I really liked overall the cast. And I thought that, you know, it's a rough thing to take these beloved animated characters from Rebels and then turn them into live action characters and have it work. I thought, I got to give it to them. I I know a lot of people didn't like that they got Rosario Dawson at first. Oh, no, but no. she is she is that character. She, yeah, know. she's that character. I, I I think she defines the character in live action. I really liked everybody that they picked for their respective roles. Again, I think where it falls down a lot is the writing. I think the writing still feels like they're writing an animated show because it. Let's face it, this is Rebels season. What it really is. Yeah, and and uh, so that was, and I think overall. Uh, it, the direction of the show really bothered me. I think the the direction, and I, I I can't tell John if it is the fact that they use so much of the volume that they're really limited in what they can do with the camera in terms of moving it, blocking it. You know, you brought up the idea of of this standing and crowd, uh, crossing your arms. It's because I keep wondering. I just watched a video on the direction of the old BBC show I Claudius which has these really long single takes where there's all kinds of blocking, where characters are going back and forth and this and that. When a character just crosses their arms and is planted in one place, I'm like, you don't know what to do with the actor. You haven't figured out how to make make that scene dynamic. And like, I feel that is a problem with a lot of these Star Wars shows when you're watching when you're watching them, they're so locked into using the volume that visually they can't be as dynamic as they need to be. And it looks good, but it's not, you can't move the camera the way a normal movie would, a normal Star Wars movie would. So it feels somewhere sorts halfway between animation and halfway between live action. And with them always being on the volume, like always, it has a sanitized. Feel it really does. You, know you I mean? don't. I mean, you, put you need. You can't put atmosphere in the in. The, you can't have smoke in front of a in front of the. Uh, yeah. I mean, because it 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 would throw everything off. Right. So, like when you say sanitize, everything looks too clean. It, it yeah. It gives the effect that you don't believe there's anything over those rocks. Uh, no, absolutely not, because there's no atmosphere. And it's, it, I think it really hurts. Whereas Andor was was dripped with atmosphere. Can no you imagine how this even just just take these two episodes? How much of a different difference visually would made if they had taken? Now I get, I get it. There were some environments that you got to use the volume. I get it. But can you imagine how this the first two episodes would have looked and how they would have been shot if they had taken the Andor approach and used all practical environments, all real locations. All that kind of stuff. Like, I think, can you imagine how the, the feel difference it would have had? And with the actors, too. I mean, but, you know, even from the very beginning of the episode, the, the first episode, here's a ship that they don't recognize. They don't know. Well, the transponder, they, they basically play off that beat in Return of the Jedi. Well, you know, they're, they're sh- it, the transmitter. The, the, it's it an old code, out. but it it's an old, Yeah, it's an old code, but <laughs> I was about to clear Why would them. they let them on the ship? Uh, that's the thing. I'm like, why would they let... Is- a, a ship they're convinced of isn't legit that itself could just be a giant bomb. Uh, and we're like, you know what? Let uh, them land. And, I'll allow it. You know what? This, YOLO. Yeah. <laughs> what? 
I mean, this is my problem with the overall writing is there's always things like this throughout both of these episodes where I'm like, and whether it's Sabine, you're like, well, let's go. Let's talk to Sabine. Like, okay, really? And you're, you're, these things make no sense to me. And what it does is it undermines the credibility of the whole show when your characters do something. I mean, this guy's like, I don't believe they're Jedi. But we're going to meet him anyway. Why? Why would you? And then of this course, just came off onto your ship, and, and you're like, <laughs> eh. And I feel like we're getting, especially in these science fiction shows. I mean, do you not? Are people just dumb? Like, are they? And it's funny because he comes out and he's got he's all like smug too with his with his group of yeah. defenders waiting. Yeah. They don't even know it's going to walk off. What if the ship itself exploded? Like, I, the first thing I thought when when the when they had the scene, the door opening, him walking through, it was like. One, two, three. He's got six guys with him. Why not bring 60? How about the like, fact that- You have that no idea what's on this ship. There's a prisoner on their ship that is desired by other people. Yeah, you know, I right. mean, it's like, we here's a mysterious ship that's coming. Let's let the- I mean, and I was again, looking at- Again, plot device, right? Plot device. Uh, again, and I'm just looking at this, and I feel that a lot of, with these Star Wars shows, and now with Marvel shows as well, that this, this is really hurting the writing of a lot of these programs. But- that said, I did enjoy both episodes. I was like, okay. I mean, despite the fact that I, I, I guess now, cause I expect the writing to be substandard. They they need to start writing a live action show and not an animated series. I feel like even in the Mandalorian, I feel like they, there's a level of writing that we're missing because they feel, eh, we don't have to make it as realistic because it's a Star Wars show. You know, it's, I mean, The Mandalorian felt like it was an animated show. It could have been an animated show and it would have been fine. And I just feel they need to step up the writing. But but that said, I did enjoy this probably more than I've enjoyed any of the Disney shows aside from the second season. Second season of Mandalorian is still my favorite single season. I loved Andor for being different than Star Wars, but this felt like, okay, we're inserted into the Star Wars universe. It's not like somebody going, we're going to do something a little different. This was clearly, it's building on Rebels, it's building on Clone Wars, it's building on all this mythology. I call it the Filoni-verse, the subverse of the Star Wars universe, the Filoni-verse. <laughs> and I was like, I liked it. You know, I'll, despite, I'll I mean, I, I, I want to see where it's going. I, I thoroughly enjoyed myself at the end of that Second episode. I can't say that I thoroughly enjoyed myself, but I will say that, and like I said at the beginning, this is, there was enough in there that I'm like, I'm curious to see episode three, yeah. right? And I will say the first two episodes of Ahsoka were better than Obi-Wan, was be certainly better than the book of Boba Fett. Yes. And I enjoyed the first two episodes more than I enjoyed Mandalorian season three. Yes. Uh, I mean, so I'll say that. So it's still a bit of a step up. I, I think maybe I just got myself too psyched up for how how excited I was for it because I think the trailers have been Well, amazing. the trailers are bangers. Now, a no couple doubt. other good things too. Tell me, right at the beginning when she's going to the top, tell me you didn't get Raiders of the Lost Ark vibes. Oh, dude. Like I started, I thought any second now, Ahsoka was starting to go and then pick up some sand. But it, so that felt really good. And I got to say, by the end, by the time Morgan, even though doesn't make a lot of sense how they got there. Still, when Morgan is like showing where we got to go, we need this warp drive because we got to make this incredibly long trip <coughs> to go get, you know, Grand Admiral Thrawn, all that kind of stuff. By the time that was happening, I was like, okay, this feels like the space adventure 
that Star Wars is supposed to feel like. And I was starting to really get into a bit by the end there. So I'm looking forward to the I, third episode. You just reminded me of one thing I did want to say. Both the the Tidarium shuttle scene at the beginning. Right. And then also the looking for the map, which was very Force Awakens. Yes. They're looking to the map where Luke is. Why is it so hard to figure out? <laughs> like everybody needs maps. <laughs> Like I, I, I like the galaxy is the galaxy, and you know. That, I get, I'm still stuck on how did that map get there in this thousands of year old I, temple? That's been- I I agree. This idea that they need maps, I'm like, come on, man. Why is this? And and these are they're now they're now borrowing plot devices from previous Star Wars movies, and I don't like that. It seems like we've seen that <laughs> played people. out before. Because that was like you said, you were able, uh, Jonathan was able to recite dialogue from Return of the Jedi, knowing exactly what I meant. And it's like, we shouldn't be able to do that. We should get something new. Give me a, I don't need a map. All right. Uh, The galaxy's charted. So you guys liked it. Here's here's the thing. You know what it is for me? I think at the end of the day, if you had to just boil it down, say, John, did you like it or did you dislike it? I'm going to say I liked it. I think the pros outweigh the cons for me. Yeah. It's just, I was hoping for better. I was hoping for more. But yeah, I liked it. And listen, we're only two episodes in. They've got 10 in total. We got eight more episodes to go. And maybe this is just going to be the launching off point and it's just going to get better and better. And that's what I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for. I will say this, you know, HasLab, Hasbros, they're making a toy of the ghost. And you have to, it's, it's crowdfunded. And I was like, eh, you know. Why is Hasbro crowdfunding stuff? Because it's too expensive to to put out. Oh, that makes so, sense. So they yeah. crowdfund so they know and they, they have certain levels they have to meet. And I was looking at it. It's really big. It's really cool. It, this made me, in anticipation, I went back and watched Rebels, like you did with Anne. And uh, I don't know why, but this show made me want to buy that ghost. <laughs> well, I mean, I... I've always loved the ghost. Wait, been, yeah. I, a vehicle like, I, from a from a IP made you. Made I, know, I know, but I'm going to do it. Like I don't collect. I don't collect three and three quarter inch figures. You know, it even comes with a figure of Ezra. Oh, uh, oh one other thing I should mention that I really did love in the episode. I really loved Chopper in the episode. Chopper. Remember, I said Harrow was the most true to the animated version. Yeah. I take that back. Chopper was the most true to the animated yeah. version. I love Chopper. And I, I always have, and I love the way they use Chopper in this. It's really like the personality just exudes. Even though we can't understand Chopper, I feel like we can totally understand Chopper, right? So I, I got to say, I really did love that. All right, guys, listen. Uh, we uh, are now going to take some time and take your questions. Uh, we asked, first of all, our YouTube channel members to send in some questions. So we're going to get to those and then we'll read a couple of super chats. If you guys do have a question you want or an observation or a thought you want to send in, go ahead and use the super chat feature to do that. But let's get over. We only got a little bit of time left, but uh, let's get over and take some questions from our YouTube channel members. First. What do we got up there, John? All right. Red One Real Talk says, hey, crew, I rewatched Contact and Stargate this weekend and it had me thinking, what are your favorite non-Star Wars Trek sci-fi films. So non-contact is fantastic. fantastic. Why well, haven't Warner Brothers released on 4K? So good. Um, the original Stargate, I'm one of those people that I prefer the Stargate series over mm. the movie, to be honest with you. But Seth, um, favorite sci-fi movie. You got one? Well, I would think recent movies, Arrival. 
I was going to say Arrival. With yeah. Arrival, Denis Villeneuve, yeah, Denis Villeneuve directed. Yeah. I mean, of course, Blade Runner and all that. There's so many different, but recent movies that I loved. I, I loved Children of Men, Gattaca. You know, those movies we got in the early aughts. Her, I think, is a great science fiction movie that's not space necessarily related. But I recently watched Event Horizon again, which yeah, I, I did I mean, not dig Event Horizon. You know, I know you did, but but I think Contact and and uh, I mean, if you are talking about literary sci-fi. I think Arrival is probably my favorite in recent years. I'm going to cheat a little bit. I'm going to cheat a little bit and say not movie, but show is Ronald D. Moore's Battlestar Galactica is probably Mm -hmm. my favorite. Yeah. My, mine, uh, a lot of people might scratch their heads and because they'd say like, well, that's not sci-fi. Yeah, it is sci-fi. I would say gravity. Oh yeah. No, gravity is great. Gravity. I I love gravity. All right. What's next? Uh, We got Dr. Stinky. <laughs> hey, John and crew. Have you ever seen The Adventures of Milo and Otis? It's one of the best animal movies. A lot of cats and dogs died in that movie. And anyone uh, who hasn't seen it should watch it. It's the first movie that made me cry as a kid. If you knew how many cats and do- dogs died in that movie, you'd cry too. I, I, I don't know anything about the movie. Mm-hmm. They, they had a real, like a lot Dude, of... Dude, when they, when they throw the dog off the fucking cliff, that dog's dead. There's a... There's a lot of Wait write-ups on this. This is a live action film? Yeah. And they literally threw a dog off a cliff? Dude, there's a lot. Yeah. Wait I, a minute. They they the filmmakers literally said, let's take this living, breathing dog. And I'm just let's saying a lot of animals died on this filming of that movie, and they got sued, and there's a lot of litigation. Yeah. How are they not in prison? How, are they, how is this movie even playing? Or is this true? Yeah. They actually did that? I, I do not know. Oh my god. Wait a minute. Okay. Hey, buddy. Yeah, man. Thanks, Doctor. Now I'm getting angry. <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm just getting I'm about upset. to hulk out about this. All right, what's next? All right, Amin writes, 10 years ago, uh, let me do this. 10 years ago, Ben Affleck was announced as Batman. Time really flies. I'll admit yeah. when the announcement came out, I was one of those who thought he could make a good Bruce Wayne, but couldn't see him as Batman. Well, we all saw what happened next. My, not my favorite Batman, but a damn great one for sure. Wish we would have gotten this Batman-directed film. I think, seriously, one of the biggest uh, shames of the fact that the DCU failed was the fact that we never got our Ben Affleck Batman movie. That, that one he was going to do with Deathstroke. That that a number of comic book writers and uh, WB writers for their animated just said it was simply said, the comment was, it was the greatest Batman script they ever read. And we're not getting it. And it's just a damn shame. Damn shame. I agree. All right, what's next? All right. CJ Rebirth writes, had a lot of fun watching Ahsoka last night. Sabine's my favorite character in the show so far. I love that some of the music reminded me of Han and Leia's theme. That's one of the things neither of us mentioned. I like the music. I did too. The music was actually quite good. Very much so. Yeah, I dug it. All right, what's next? Uh, Okay, here we go. Uh, David uh, Lloyd writes, over under 30%. The creator makes more than Black Adam at the box office. I think it does only if it's rated uh, 12 or PG-13. I'm going to go... 30% 30% is still low, but I'm going to go under. I think Crater is going to be a better movie than Black Adam. I'm not sensing a lot of buzz. And honestly, the trailers they have put out, I don't think they're going to excite general movie-going audiences. I know they excited Ray. Yep. But tell you, I don't think it's going to... Ex- for you right here. <laughs> I, I just don't think it's going to excite general movie-going audiences. So the basically the question is, do I think the Crater can make $400 million at the box office? They need it to, but I don't think it will, Rob. Do, you, you know, I'm, I have to say I'm really excited to see this movie. I saw an interview just yesterday. I was watching a clip. I think it was done... I don't know if it was on Screen Rant or whatever. It was done at Comic-Con where they interviewed Gareth Edwards, and he was talking about... He was inspired 
to make this movie, he was watching Apocalypse Now and he was looking, thinking about the rice patties in Vietnam. And he's like, what if the rice patties were full of robots? And I, I'm like, and and that that's he was talking, yeah. Like and then that. he was talking about that's he went kind of went from there, and I'm like, okay, because it does look. I, I I'm more interested. I was more interested in the trailers, especially the last trailer they put out. I thought looked great. I mean, I, I'm so happy that we're getting at least a pretty heady looking science fiction film that has a lot going on that isn't an IP. It's original. And, you know, Gareth Edwards made that movie Monster, which is how he began his career, and he yeah. came out of visual quite effects. Good, by the way. Yeah, and I, I think uh, I think it looks terrific. I, I'm really pulling for this movie. I want it to be great, and I want it to make a lot of money so more movies like this get made. But will it make $400 million? I don't think so. Yeah. That's why it's coming out in September. I think it'll be better than Black Adam. I just don't think it's going to make as much money as Black Adam. I hope I'm wrong. All right, let's take uh, one more from our uh, YouTube channel members. All right. Uh, Dad Jokes writes, although Blue Beetle didn't generate much revenue, it seems to be generally liked by comic book fan movie fans. Do you think it's because it's a true origin story with almost no connection to any other comic book movie? It was kind of refreshing for me. It brought back memories of Marvel Phase 1. I think general audiences liked it because it's a quality, well-made movie. It had nothing to do about whether it was connected to other stuff or not, or none of that mattered. They made a, a movie with good characters that had some really good emotional re resonance with them that we felt connected. Again, I, I love the one scene between Jaime and his dad sitting in, in the yard just looking out at the city. There's something really, really nice about that. Um, the action was good. It's not a great movie, but it's a good movie. And I, I had a good time. And I think that's why audiences are liking it. Have you had a chance to see it? Yeah, I went and what saw it. What did you think? I, okay. I liked it. Yeah, me you too. You know, I mean, I, for what it was, it was kind of your basic. Yep. Uh, there was nothing in it that was surprising, but I enjoyed it. Like, I had fun watching it. And I read something yesterday that I don't know if this is true because I don't speak fluent Spanish. But somebody had written that all the Spanish in the movie and everything that was said was very authentic. Yeah. At least to them, it was authentic. And the way, the, the phrasing that was, and I thought that was really cool because some people have said the exact opposite that aren't necessarily native Spanish speakers. So it's nice to hear that. I felt it was authentic. You know what? Look, to be honest, John, it is a pretty by-the-numbers sci-fi origin, science fiction, superhero origin story because it was a very much of a sure, science. Nothing game-changing. Nothing game-changing. But... I enjoyed myself. Dude, yeah. I still it think made it made me smile. I, yeah. I thought the effects, I liked some of the action sequences. You know, we saw the the actual suit was at CinemaCon. Yes. I thought, and I liked the suit up, and I'm like, I would buy a hot toy figure of that suit after watching are. it in action. Well, and also his transformation <laughs> was like horror. Yeah. Th yes. Like, and there was a little body horror stuff. Yeah. That I, which I, I, the thing went inside. I, I, was, I liked it. <laughs> yeah. I like what's it. his name would say. Did it go up in the All right. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's go to the super chats. What do we got coming in All from right. our live viewers? We got. And then we got to wrap things up. Yeah. Andy writes, words of wisdom. If you have ever uh, feel broken, remember that you are enough. <laughs> after all, you can't spell broken without bro and Ken. Oh. Uh, I'll tell you what. One of the biggest laughs that got from me. And there's a lot of good humorous moments in Barbie, but I, maybe the biggest laugh I had was when I realized the shirt he was wearing that said, I am Knuff. Yeah. I, I laughed really hard the first time I saw it. That was a really, really good, you can't spell. Uh, I like that. All right, what's next? All right, we've got Andy who writes, the writing, to, the writing to Ahsoka so far is convoluted. If Ahsoka and Sabine wanted to find Ezra, why didn't they just try checking out some karaoke bars in Hawaii first? Oh, oh, wrong Ezra. Ezra. Ah, oh, a little Ezra Miller joke in there. 
Actually, that's not bad. That was pretty good. What? That's not that's bad, but that's not, not great. Bad. That's not bad. All right. What's next? All right. Uh, Jamie Sundays writes, Andor had scenes of the Empire discussing small details of plotted coup in a room, and it was fantastic. Ahsoka had saber fights, and I was yawning. Look, I, like I said, if, if I have to boil it down to, did I like or dislike the first two episodes of Ahsoka? I like them. But there is just clearly a different level between Andor and just about everything else that's been. Yeah, it's not even on the same plane. They're not on the same league. It's it's Andor is here, and then everything else is either here or here or maybe here (laughs) or maybe here, but Andor is up here. It's just another level. It's just superior storytelling, superior filmmaking. I got to binge it. But- but that doesn't mean, but that, see, that's the same thing. Like whenever there's a crime movie, say, but is it as good as The Godfather? Not everything has to be as good as The Godfather to be good and enjoyable and have a worthy place, right? Ahsoka can be all that, but it's not going to be as good as Andor. And we don't need it to be. Be great at what it is you're doing. And if you're going to be more of a bubblegum lightsaber fight, then make it the best bubblegum fun lightsaber fight kind of show you can be. They did some of it well. Some of it not so well, but you're you're gonna have, you're not gonna hear me trying to compare it a lot to Andor because Andor is just a different level. I mean, to me. All right, what's next? CJ Rebirth writes Jamie Fox in the couch and strays. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Did man. You Rob, uh, yes, uh, but okay. I know, I know. You're I, I gotta tell about. you, I, I I talked about this the other day, <laughs> but I remember back when Shane Black's The Nice Guys came out with uh, Russell Crowe and uh, Ryan Gosling. And that movie is brilliant. It's so good. It's wildly original. And nobody went to go see it. No. And for the longest time, we talked about how, hey, movie fans, like, because I, I hear a lot from movie fans. Movie fans are, why aren't you in Hollywood making anything original? They are. They make a shit ton of original, fresh stuff. More than you realize, more than in any other time in history. The problem continues to be that when something wonderfully original comes out like Nice Guys, we, and I'm, I've been guilty of this too. We all are. We as film fans are collectively guilty of this. We don't go support it. This year, you know, we heard a lot of people in the last year and a half, two years saying, where's the comedy gone? Where are comedies anywhere? If you want comedy now, you got to go to a comic book movie. Like, where's the comedies? Where's the mature comedies, right? This year, we've had two of the funniest movies, uh, Joyride and Strays. And nobody saw either of them. Nobody saw them. Purely original, wildly funny, absolutely filthy. And then people, where, where's the original R-rated comedy? They're here. <laughs> no one's seen them. Strays made $8 million in its opening weekend. I don't even know if Joyride made $8 million in its entire theatrical oh, yeah, run. Dude, I don't, there's an article, I got to read it. Uh, it was in, I think, in Puck this week about this very issue. The funniest thing that I've seen, I don't know why I think it's so funny, was in those trailers when the human hands come up. Oh, that was human. so funny. It killed I me. mean, in that trailer, every time, even I think, about it, <laughs> I think about it now, it cracks me up. That alone, I, I want to take Elizabeth to see Strays. <laughs> you know what? 100%, 100%, none of the top 10 funniest things in the movie are in the trailer. <laughs> none of the top 10 funniest things in the movie are even in the trailer. It's, yeah. 
You got to go see it. So, so far, uh, it looks like Joyride did make 15 because it eked out 2 million worldwide. Ooh, 15. Yeah, and so far, Strays is at 11. <laughs> oh, God. Dude, 26 I, million between the two of them combined, and they're both hilarious comedies. We, we saw Joyride at, at CinemaCon. Yeah. And I, we were howling. Dude, I turned around and looked at you because you were sitting right behind me. I turned around and looked at you at one point. I don't know if you saw me looking, but your face was beet red tears you coming down. You were laughing so hard. I thought that movie was absolute. That The one, the payoff of that gag, the one shot, it's a gag about a certain part of an anatomy. Oh, my that, God. That payoff was like, I couldn't, I, my jaw hit the floor. I could I, barely breathe. Uh, I could barely breathe. It was, I loved it. All right, let's keep going. What's next? All right. Uh, Guzman writes, Optimistic Take Blue Beetle has made $50 million more than it would have made going direct to streaming. Yep. Also, it became my favorite DCU movie since the Suicide Squad. Squad, I call that a win. Well, I mean... WB does okay, it, but... So, so here's the thing. It has not made $50 million more than if it went straight to, to Max because they spent... They would have had a marketing campaign putting it straight to Max, but they spent more on the marketing campaign for the theatrical release. But I think it's pretty safe to say they've more than covered that difference mm. between what they would, because maybe they would have spent a $20 million marketing push if it was going straight to HBO Max, maybe a $60 million marketing push with the theatrical, because they didn't market the hell out of it. So I think they more than made up. So yes, they are technically now, they have already made more money back on this film with its theatrical run than it would have been if they put it straight to HBO Max. I wouldn't call it a win. What's a win <laughs> was the strategy of putting it in theaters. That strategy was a win. The movie itself is not yet a win and maybe it'll be a win. Maybe it won't be, but it certainly isn't yet. Right. All right, what's next? Uh, hold on, hold on. Can we get a question about Invasion? Come on. Nobody well, cares about invasion. Dude, it's the most boring alien invasion oh. ever committed to film. <laughs> Sorry, right, Have you knows, watched maybe... the second season? Yeah. You didn't like it? Dude, the first season put me to sleep. Oh. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. Maybe there'll be an invasion question. What's next? Kevin Cow writes live show and loved uh, the first two episodes of Ahsoka so far. Hope they show more of what happened between Ahsoka and Sabine as Master and Apprentice. Well, it's not that you hope. It'll be completely incompetent story writing if they don't. Because they obviously have set up this thing about something went down, blah, blah, blah. They are obviously going to pay that off. We're, we're definitely going to get the answers to that. Um, that's actually one of the things that I, you know, that, you know, you want to plant some seeds. And that's one of those seeds they plant. But what went down? Why did the two of them go their separate ways, right? That's going to be one of the payoffs in story as we, we move forward. For sure. 100%. All right. What's next? All right. Devin Lita simply says, Rob's back. <laughs> That's funny. Somebody, somebody wrote to me the other day saying, you think Rob, like you said uh, before that, you know, Rob's going to pop in once in a while. When's he ever going to do that? I'm like, he's been on the show a number <laughs> yeah. of times. I mean, like, what, we did say that from the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs> so, he, hello. He has been here a number of times. All right. What's next? Uh, Norwegian Krypto Kryptonian writes, uh, they got to stop t uh, poking people with lightsabers. Qui-Gon Jinn, uh, Draw that thing uh, through a blast door, uh, and we saw the metal boiling around it. It would be very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. See, I, honestly, at first, at first, and I was about to stand up and applaud, not because I, I wanted Sabine Wren to die, not at all, but at first I thought, did they actually just kill Sabine? <laughs> 
And the reason I was going to stand up and applaud if they had was not because I don't like, I love the Sabine character, right? But it was like, if you had the balls to kill off a character like that right up front and, and it's just in that split second, all these things started running through imagination. The story going forward, now Ahsoka is also looking for vengeance, which is a dark side thing. And mm-hmm. I just started wondering all these amazing things. And then I was like, oh, no, 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 she's got, but but why get her with the same wound that killed a much more powerful Jedi with Qui-Gon Jinn? <laughs> Dude, Kevin yeah. Rubio, our friend Kevin Rubio, who made Troops, texts me last night. He goes, did you watch Ahsoka? Uh, the last minute, I'm out. Really? <laughs> and he didn't watch the second episode. I would have thought Kevin would have liked it. What would you think, Kevin? He was not happy. <laughs> oh, he didn't even watch the second episode. Uh, he might have since then. But this is what he wrote me when when he texted me last night. <laughs> this like, this friend of ours, Kevin, is a writer in Star Wars comic books. He is he has made the greatest Star Wars fan film of all time. He created Tag and Bink. Yeah, he created Tag and Bink, which are in the solo. Wow. Interesting. I'm sure he's watched it since then, but he was not happy about that. No, I, I guess not. All right, what's next? Joe Panora writes favorite sci-fi. Got to be Highlander. You know what? Yeah, for movies, I, like when they when they were said other than like Star Wars, I'm thinking like galactic space battle kind of sci-fi. But yeah, in pure sci-fi, Highlander. That is the one movie. It's a sci-fi fantasy. Sci-fi fantasy, but you know. Whenever I tell people my top 10 favorite movies of all time, they may or may not agree with it, but each movie I list off, they go, oh yeah, that's a great one. And oh yeah, that's a great, might not be on their list, but the one movie on my list that everybody goes, what? The original Highlander. The original Highlander is still in my top 10 favorite Clancy Brown, who we just saw in Ahsoka. I mean, theoretically, you're right. Highlander wasn't uh, sci-fi until the second one came oh, out. No, you yeah. found out they were aliens. They from an alien thing. is like, <laughs> wait a minute, let me give you. They're criminals, and their punishment <laughs> is to be immortal? That's their pu- Highlander 2 is one of the worst films ever made in history. <laughs> it's so bad. So bad. <laughs> All right, guys, we've gone overtime here, and that'll do it for today's installment of the John Campy Show podcast. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Uh, by the way, if you're watching live, um, we don't do the show live anymore. We just thought, you know what? The way the day's lining up, let's just do it live today. <laughs> we, we might do that once or twice a month. So we just did that today. But don't expect that tomorrow the show will be live. It'll be pre-recorded as normal. But we're glad that those of you who are here live did join us live. So thank you so much for that. Uh, don't forget, guys, to subscribe to the John Campus Show podcast on your favorite podcasting app of choice. Not only that, but our open mics are in that podcast feed as well. Go subscribe to it in Apple Podcast, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app of choice. Whatever it is, go and subscribe to it today. So, for everybody in the room, Ray Ora. Still Wednesday, baby. Jonathan Foyko. <laughs> See you later. A writer, director, producer, YouTuber, creator, and all sorts of things, Robert Meyer Burnett. It's surprise day, and I'm here. <laughs> and uh, most importantly, thank you to you guys for being here. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye. Rob Soka. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. 
CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.